You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome everyone to another Walker webcast. It's a beautiful day here in Denver, Colorado, and we can actually see the front range, which is very nice after weeks and months of smoke sitting in the front range from the fires to our west. I had Stephen DeFrancis of Cortland Partners on last week for what I thought was a fantastic conversation about what makes Cortland such a special company and why Stephen and his team have been so successful. And we turned around this week and did an extremely large financing on a portfolio that Cortland acquired a number of months ago. And it was great to see our two teams work so well together on an exceedingly large transaction. And I know that those assets are now in great hands with Cortland. I typically would spend a little bit more time giving people an update on the markets, but the markets just continue to move forward. Equity markets at all-time highs, debt markets uh, still incredibly cheap, relatively speaking, and many of the inflationary pressures that everyone continues to talk about in some areas seem to be abating. Our three boys headed back to high school this morning here in Colorado. They were wearing masks, but as everyone deals with the new frontier of kids back in either daycare or schools or out of the nest and companies push to get back into the office, communication, culture, and quite honestly, leadership is needed now more than ever. And it's one of the reasons I'm so excited to have Bob Glazer joining me today to talk about those issues as well as many more. The one other thing I would note on that is that it seems like the Wall Street banks are leading the charge as it relates to getting back to work and getting back to the office, particularly in Manhattan. Goldman Sachs announced yesterday that employees will be expected back in the office on September 7th and that only vaccinated employees will be welcomed back into their offices. Interesting to see how all of that plays out as the large banks push to get people back into their office space in New York. So let me introduce Bob, and then we'll dive into our conversation. Bob Glazer is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners, a global partner marketing agency. He is also the recipient of numerous industry and company culture awards, including Glassdoor's Employees' Choice Award two years in a row. He is the author of the inspirational newsletter, Friday Forward. He has also turned Friday Forward into a best-selling book, and he is also the author of another international bestseller, Performance Partnerships and Elevate. Outside of work, Bob can likely be found skiing, cycling, reading, traveling, spending quality time with his family, or overseeing some type of home renovation project if he can find the materials at Home Depot today. So, Bob, first thing I want to go into, because I want to There's so much to explore with you. You're such a renaissance man in the sense of what you have read, what you have written, how you have led your company, how you have built your company. But I want to start so that people get an understanding of what you do on a day-to-day basis as it relates to running Acceleration Partners. And can you explain for us what affiliate marketing is 
and what Acceleration Partners does to create relationships between merchants, affiliate networks, publishers, and the consumer? Yeah, I've been trying to explain this to my parents for over a decade now. So I'll try that. Look, at at its simplest, uh, affiliate marketing is sort of paying for an outcome. So I think we're aware of digital... It's a form of digital marketing where people pay for impressions or they pay for clicks. This is a form where you can get a whole bunch of partners to join your program, agree to like a commission percentage, which I know a lot of people in real estate will understand. And they drive traffic from whatever it is that they do. And when then something is purchased on the site or a service or a product, they are paid a commission. So the risk is split, but all of that is tracked using technology. And so it's a big part of digital marketing and increasingly with all the direct-to-consumer brands who want to go more directly because you're paying for your marketing after you get your revenue. And just super simple example, you know, you could join Amazon's affiliate program. You could be writing up on your blog, a recap of this post and link to Bob's four books. And you could sign up as an affiliate of Amazon and Amazon would pay you a 5% commission for anyone you drove to buy that book from Amazon that day. And plus, if I added my groceries to the order, you'd get paid for that too. So yeah, it's just really a way to pay partners for delivering an outcome. And What's the most important piece to that, to the value that your team creates in the sense that it seems like there's a whole sector of the marketing slash publicity world that many people don't even know exists. And so you're opening their eyes to that. You're also having to develop content. You're also finding the affiliate networks. What's the special sauce that that Acceleration Partners provides when someone comes to them and says, we at Walker and Dunlop want to head into this space? Yeah. So let's say you were selling online leases, right? And you were signing up people for leases online. You said, look, we'll give anyone who can drive people to a lease to our building, we'll give them 10% of the lease value, kind of like you would to broker, but this is direct to, to consumer. So there's some software that needs to manage a program like that. And we're, we're experts in those platforms. You know, A lot of companies don't know how to use them. They know how they want to use them, but they don't know the nuances of those platforms and how to set up those campaigns and manage them. And then also when you have to be recruiting partners every day and keeping them up to date, when you have a program with 500 or 1,000 partners, there's a lot of people who need stuff. So we act as sort of the client service team to those partners. I think what makes these programs scalable is the digital aspect of being able to track, measure, and pay using technology. However, there are still humans and businesses behind those who have needs, want deals, want to work out a campaign with you. And so our team just knows how to find them, engage them, and get the best out of them. You work with some really big brands, Adidas, Target, LinkedIn, to name a couple. If you're comfortable naming one of them, what's a fun company to work with? What is it that, that you sit there with your team and say, man, we've got a great opportunity here to really change the way that XYZ company goes to market and sells what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, we we helped Uber build their partner program for years, and it sort of mimicked the business, right? From let's get a bunch of riders to how do we get more drivers and where are people looking for jobs or otherwise they become drivers to then a pandemic and focused on eats and how do we get more people driving for eats? So, and then they're going into this country and trying to build up the ecosystem there. So, our work there really sort of mimicked their pace and where they were operating. So, it's always been an interesting program and client to work with. Unfortunately, yeah, I, I think I'm. There's about three rocket ship ones that were in my head, but I'm I'm, I'm actually embargoed from. <laughs> I, a lot of our clients want them to build their program, but don't want us to our competitors to know that we're building their program. And you mentioned about Uber, who went global while you were working with them. Any difference in affiliate marketing between the U.S. 
EMEA and APAC. You have offices around the globe. Any Anything different as it relates to the way to either find the customers or the way the technology is being used as you move around the globe? Yeah, the tech's being used in a similar way, but one of our core things in our business is publisher relations, like relationship with these people who produce the content or have the, the business that's driving the traffic to you. And there are cultural differences, there are language differences. So part of our going global was realizing that, yeah, the technology is kind of global and the strategy can be global, but we are going to need context in each of these markets and to truly run a, a global program. So yeah, we've seen a lot of differences. There's some countries where like they won't talk to someone outside of their country and you need to go meet face-to-face and, and have a discussion with them. As you grew acceleration and went global, any growing pains moving it out of the United States and, and and going to Europe and going to Asia and how much that either distracted you as the leader to having to travel to London to meet with your team or go to Shanghai to meet with your team? Or is it all pretty much scaled similar to when you moved from Boston to San Francisco? My whole life is growing pain. So I, <laughs> so I think there are two things when you build a company globally. I'd see people are too far of one of the mistake spectrums. And we've tried to in the middle. First is you got to find the right people, right? So I think companies make two mistakes. One is they they go find the right local team, but there's no connection to the company or the culture overall, and you end up having all these unintegrated fiefdoms. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is you send a bunch of expats over to a market who understand the company, but don't understand the contacts and local and otherwise. So we've always tried to spend some time in a market, learn it, find the best person that we can who can then lead in that market, and then but make sure that they are aligned to our culture and that it is one company. We certainly have regional nuances and we've learned things around how people like to communicate and otherwise, but we don't want to have multiple cultures. And all the companies I've talked to that great global businesses, I think they felt like there were some true values that they had that were universal that should have been across culture. And it might be harder to find some of them in some cultures. Like if you want people that really challenge the status quo, like you might find that harder in some Asian cultures to find people that's just not the natural, but they're there, right? Or people who that's who they've worked in an environment where they weren't allowed to challenge anything, but they wanted to. And so they, you know, putting them in the right system. I mean, I've had some really interesting discussions with our some colleagues abroad were saying, look, I know you've worked in environments like this, but is that actually how you believe it should go from a humanistic standpoint? And their answer is no. I don't think we should be deferent to people that don't know what they're talking about and never say something. So, I mean, I've learned a lot as we've made plenty of mistakes and, and expanded globally, but I do think it is that combination of finding the right local team and leaders who understand the market, but there's a shared vision globally. And as it relates to expansion during the pandemic, has the ability to interact with people via Zoom in such a sort of easy way made bringing on new team members around the globe easier or more difficult in the sense that the old way would be for you to hop on a plane, go over, take them to dinner, get to really know them, and you don't actually have the opportunity to do that without being able to hop on the airplane? We've been remote for 14 years. So we've gotten, but we, we were remote when we have to hide it from our clients because we had these Fortune 100 clients and we didn't want them to know we were remote. And for us, it was a talent play initially. We just, we were working with really big clients. The industry did not have enough talent and we need to get it where we could get it. So with that said, our team likes to see each other. They like to get together. We don't work in office every day, but they were not antisocial. We just had our first local hub meetings in, in 18 months and people were like ecstatic to get together and they're missing that. So, I mean, we've learned good systems for remote, but yeah, I'm 
I am overdue to go to London. I'm overdue to go to Asia. Like as much as it's not day to day, you know, sitting down with that team for a day, I think is an important. And that's the stuff that's really hard to do on Zoom. Like I'm a big fan of distributed work, like executive offsites. If I never had to do one online again, like there's just some things that don't work. There's some things where a dinner really is important. And so we've done the best that we could given the environment. So you started writing Friday Forward as an email to your colleagues to sort of talk about what was on your mind and communicate on a weekly basis. And Friday Forward went from, I think, being sent to 30 people to now to over 200,000 people on a weekly basis. Beyond the fact that it obviously has great content. And at the end of the day, if it didn't have great content, it wouldn't be out there, it wouldn't be read. So that all goes back to you and, and how you've gone about picking topics to write on and what you have written about them. But beyond that, what has made Friday Forward accelerate? Yeah. I didn't say that on purpose, but accelerate. Or, or elevate. Or, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I think a lot of people who get into content have very obvious ulterior motives. They have a real estate firm and they want to sell real estate. And I always felt like, I think back to, I had a client years ago that was an online retailer their blog was so good about design. Like it just could have stood on its own. It wasn't pitching their products. It was just, it was a great blog on design. And they brought a lot of people into their sphere of influence who would then realize that this blog was published by a online retailer. So, you know, a couple of things. I think the quality matters. I think I tried to focus on how do I add value for other people in adding value for other people. I think people shared it a lot and just figuring out the formula of, What's the right length? Not making it look like a newsletter, you know, making it look like a email that you would get so people read it. But really, I also do think it was having not an ulterior motive. Like I started doing it because it was part of my morning routine. There were some interesting things I wanted to share. I wanted to share some stuff with our team that was not about work that I thought would be interesting. And and I didn't even realize for six or eight weeks that people were sharing them outside the company and it might have value outside the company. So I never much to the chagrin of our marketing team earlier on, they're like, why don't you put this on the company? I'm like, nah, like, I think this is a way to connect with people. And so I do think that that focus on does this have value for the reader versus I think a lot of people create things where how could I get value out of this? And my friend, John Rulin is the guru on this. If you haven't had him on, on, on sort of gifting as a business strategy, but I think you get more value if you give more value first because you establish that trust in that relationship. Look, you've never seen nothing in a Friday for has ever talked about affiliate marketing. What I find interesting is sometimes when people are introducing me to a potential prospect or otherwise, they're doing it from a Friday forward that had nothing to do with affiliate marketing at all. So there's some trust that's been established or some understanding that these might be good people to work with. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I... I've called it lateral marketing. And the only the reason I use that is because at Walker and Dunlop, before we started doing the webcast, all of our marketing was directed at a client. It was, right. we can do X, Y, and Z for you. We're really good at doing that. And that's why you ought to come hire us. And to exactly what you just said, when we started doing the webcast, it wasn't that we were trying to promote WND and what we do here. It was all about, we were in the midst of a pandemic. We wanted to get information out to people as it relates to the markets and all the other things that were going on in the world around us. And by doing that lateral marketing, we picked up a huge amount of direct marketing, but it was never with the idea to be doing direct. It was it was lateral from the very beginning. 
Yeah. And, and look, the easier test that like could stand alone, right? Uh, if you detach it from your business, someone would be like, that's an interesting interview. That's an interesting podcast. It would just stand on its own, own two feet. And so I think when people are thinking about marketing or thinking, you know, one of the things that John says around gifting is like, look, if I send you, so John sends gifts where he inscribes the person or the family's name into things. Like if I send you a jacket with my company's name on it, it is a promotional piece that is not a gift. John has helped all of these companies like grow their clients base by, by sending these crazy lucrative gifts that are engraved with their family name that have no hidden objective to them. And again, it's a different approach. Yeah. I would say on that, it makes it reminds me of Steve Jobs saying the best camera you'll ever have is the one you actually have. And it's sort of like a gift that you give somebody that has your logo on it that they never wear isn't going to do you any good. It's something that they think of you when they yeah. use it, but it doesn't right. necessarily have to have your brand on the outside of it. It's really interesting. You really think of it as a gift. I was just on a guy's podcast and then he was pitching me on sending a gift to your podcast guest. And he sent me a sample and it was this big t-shirt with a podcast name, which I'm never going to wear. And then a mug with a podcast name with, with said like, I'm whatever. It was kind of, I was like thinking like, that's not at all what I would send my guests as a thank you. Again, it feels like I'm asking them to market for me, not that I'm actually thanking them. Well, I hope you'll enjoy the wine we send you after this. And it is, <laughs> it is not Walker and Dunlop branded wine. I'll give a plug for Jordan. It is Jordan wine. So if you enjoy Jordan wine, enjoy it and have a good evening with it. On that topic, I want to talk about, you just wrote recently on revenue equaling reputation and reach and how many people have fantastic reputations, but never figure out how to expand their reach. You want to talk about that for a moment? Because obviously Friday Forward has expanded your personal reach and the reach of Acceleration Partners tremendously. What other things can people do as it relates to expanding their reach when they have really good reputations? Yeah, look, this is a law of nature. And I think some of us get frustrated on it by saying like, just because you do something well means that everyone should know who you are. And some firms intentionally want to be a well-kept secret, right? They want to be one location of a restaurant. They're not interested in two, three, or four. And and I totally appreciate that. But we tend to get really frustrated. I feel like everyone in their industry knows the competitor that they think is crappy work, but great reach. And they just kind of fume and get indignant about it rather than being like, well, how do I get better reach if my product's better than them? So look, we just talked about, I think, some of those tactics on how do you expand your universe? How do you expand your sort of known business? But I think if you're doing great work, you've got to share that. So I think you know, making sure you have case studies and examples. A lot of us get business from referrals and stuff. And look, I, I just sent a multi-hundred thousand dollar referral to someone who told me they signed the deal with them. I never heard from that person who who I never got even a hey, thanks for that. And look, these are people I think who aren't used to this in professional services, but man, like that would be a better way to expand. They're really good at what they do. Like just even acknowledging that, sending me a note would make me much more likely to do it next time. So I think, you know, taking the people out in the world who are our net promoters and making sure that we thank them and that they're reward the job that they're doing. There is nothing worse that you can do than not acknowledge a very lucrative referral that someone sent to you because... I think you might be likely not to get it the next time. And as it relates to in this world of social media and also the number of, whether it's Yelp or any of the other services out there that are constantly ranking and, and yeah. giving reviews on 
A lot of those are all pay for play. So let's, let, <laughs> I wrote about that last week too. Yeah. So, I mean, but talk about that because I think a lot of people don't understand that a lot of that is pay for play. And as a result of that, you can actually manipulate slash manufacture the reputation that you're getting. Yeah. So look, I mean, there's gray. I mean, I posted this thing on LinkedIn about I am asked five times a week to pay for some CEO of the year or amazing leader award. And I just finally put these letters on LinkedIn. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like if you need this to validate your own existence, then you need to kind of look in the mirror, but it's a huge industry, but you should apply. If you have happy employees, don't let the one on glass door who's angry, who leaves, you know, ask your happy employees to contribute reviews. If you think you have a good company, apply for industry awards and all the things. I'm not saying the pay-for-play stuff, but you should have someone on your team that is focused on outreach and awareness and following up on leads or understanding. One of the things that most companies don't do is just ask new clients how they found them, where they heard about them. Again, could be a referral, could be somewhere else, but you might realize, oh, I need to go down and, and double down on that source. So, you know, you've seen this in law firms, I think, noticeably in the last decade. You know, they now have COOs and CMOs. I'm not sure that other professional services firms have caught on to this as much in terms of like, hey, we should be marketing. You know, even though we're gonna do, we should be marketing. And marketing is a is a skill and a talent. And obviously, if you don't have any marketing people, then you probably shouldn't be surprised that the firm that does is getting a lot more reach than you do. Do you ever find, Bob, that particularly in the professional services space, and right now my mind goes to the large law firms, accounting firms, investment banking firms, those real white shoe firms, you know, Goldman Sachs doesn't even have a its own name on the outside of its headquarters. You just have to show up at the building and know that it's Goldman Sachs' headquarters. And they've done a lot of marketing over the years that it's kind of a top down. If the CEO or the CFO likes working with Goldman Sachs or KPMG or Cravath to pick right. three names out of the out of the sky, that's kind of the firms that they work with. Are you seeing now with the way that social media is out there that the decisions on those types of professional services relationships are actually coming from bottom up or from middle in rather than from top down? Yeah. And look, I think there's an age break on this. I mean, a lot of firms are going to influencers, people with influence are seeing huge results. I think people under 35 buy totally different than people over 35. And that bar may move around a little bit. In fact, like when I launched my books, it was almost like, here's the strategy for this demographic. And here's the playbook for different demographic. And they're totally different. So yeah, I mean, the younger generations have sort of a distrust of this higher level pervasive marketing. They want to know what their friends are doing or what their peers are doing or people that they trust are doing. And I know that's more in the consumer segment, but I think you're going to see that spill over more. I mean, one of the things we've seen in our industry, just as an example, if you weren't paying attention to our industry is like the top three or four rankings for our services started to be these directory businesses that had figured out how to optimize you know, reviews and directories and we weren't listed in them. And suddenly we noticed those were all the top rankings and our competitors were. So like that was a change that we had to make. Whatever you did yesterday, and the market's just changing way too fast to assume that whatever you did yesterday is going to work tomorrow. Yeah. One of your Friday forwards, which I loved, and it's talking a little bit about time and time moving really quickly, was a quote that you put in there by Benjamin Franklin saying, lost time is never found again. And you wrote a Friday forward on a summer Friday as you were heading out for vacation with your family. Yeah. Um, you referenced Tim Urban's 
math from looking at your life and how many days you have and how many days you have with your kids. Talk for a moment about how you've oriented your life as it relates to running acceleration partners, yet spending time with family and really, really being focused on where you're spending your time and how you're spending your time. Yeah. So I I was really influenced by Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. And I think that book is mislabeled as sort of a productivity hack. I actually think for a whole bunch of people, it was a philosophical book on don't wait until you're 65 and retire to go then do things that are interesting because you might not make it that long. And how do you integrate? Because I I think work-life balance is the wrong term. I think it stresses us out to think about how is this in perfect balance every day versus like, how do I have good work, family, personal experiences? And they all fit together in my life. So look, I work a lot, but then I've decided like, where are my grounds? You know, I've used my flexibility to never miss a birthday for one of my kids. I think we really tried to incorporate travel into our family. I remember years ago and right before that email, um, I had to be at a conference in Europe in our industry, or it didn't have to be, but there was an important conference and it was right before my son went to camp. So I, and, and I think it was first or second year of sleepover camp. He was going to be gone for four or seven weeks. And I really didn't want to be gone before he was there. And so I was like, look, why don't we turn this into a family trip to Paris and we can hang out for the week and then I'll go to the conference for a day and I'll fly back a day later. And so that's what we did. And I remember my wife at the time was like, we'll do Paris another time. My thing is like, think, think about COVID. if you can do it, do it. Like you never know when someone in your family is going to get sick, when we're going to have a global pandemic. I'm not sure we we all went to Paris. We never would have all gone to Paris together. You know, and now my kids are all in their teens and we just lost two years of some of the vacations we wanted to do before my daughter went to college. And so that's sort of become my philosophy. Like there's never a great time for anything, but if you can do it, do it. And I try to, I'm not around for everything, but again, I try to make that one of my key priorities and, and plan those trips and activities where we can have that quality time. You wrote about being in an offsite where one of your team members said to the facilitators, I don't have enough time. Yeah. The facilitator said back to that person as a leader, not enough time cannot be in your lexicon because you're clearly not managing your own time well enough because you're the one who defines your time. So I mean, clearly we'd all love to do everything, but how do you uh, manage that as it relates to finding the time to do all the things that you need to do? Is there some trick when you kind of really focus in on that you've been able to apply pretty consistently? Yeah. I think most people, including myself, are not honest with themselves about how they spend their time. Either intentionally or they don't realize. They don't realize that they spent four hours that week looking at other people's food on Facebook after telling someone else they didn't have the time to do something important. So I mean, if any executive has ever worked with a coach or been through a time audit, you learn pretty quickly, a calendar audit, how that's not true. I, through one of my mentors, I follow a system called time blocking, which is like, I don't have a free calendar that people can just jump onto. I have designated what is work time, family time, exercise time, time to do meetings, time for this. It's planned out three to four weeks in advance of the things that are my priorities Rather than, again, if you just assume that you're just going to have this random free time to work out, you're never going to work out. If exercise is a priority, you got to calendar that in. So this notion of time blocking, like no one is allowed to just grab time on my calendar. They can grab the time for open meetings, but they can't. I even have time that's like just no meeting. Like this is the actual time when I have to do all the work that people have have asked me to do. And it's a rare exception unless it's like someone calls with a 
massive opportunity or something. I just try to to protect that. So time blocking is the inverse of just letting other people fill in your calendar with their priorities and specifically going two to three to four weeks out and saying, if my priority is my family, then I'm going to book dinner with each kid one night a week. We're going to book a family trip. These are all the things that are going into my calendar first. So then it's kind of the, the analogy of the rock and the sand in a jar, right? If you put all the sand in first, the rocks won't fit. But if you put the rocks in, they'll fit if the sand goes around it. Like, what are the things that you want first before all the other stuff starts dribbling in and filling up the time? That's such a good analogy about the rocks in the jar and that they've got to stay in the jar. They got to go in first or else they, yeah, the exactly. sand goes in first, they won't fit. So talk about your stop doing list. You talk about weeding out people and projects and clients on an annual basis. How do you systematize the stop doing list? Yeah, I'm not a more for more person. I actually, I'm kind of like a one in one out. So even in my annual planning every year, it's like, here's what I want to accomplish and what am I going to stop doing? So I think there's a bunch of stop doing. There's people you need to stop doing. There's things that don't add a lot of value that can be outsourced. And then there's other things that you got to look at are more systemic back to, are you being honest about your time? There is a great episode that Tim Ferriss did on this on saying no. And I think, yeah, I, I've become a big fan of just a stop doing list. I don't assume that if I want to do something new, I can just do it. At, I have almost like a one in one out rule. And I think it's a good, it's a good way to approach things. And then you start to be honest about the things that you have been holding on to that probably don't serve your purpose anymore. Look, a lot of those may be people. Just think about how many times we catch up with dinner with someone that we don't want to have dinner. And then afterwards, we're like, we should do that again. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't even need it. Like, <laughs> you don't have to break up. Someone gave me advice on this. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast, the most popular, a guy named Don DePande on my Elevate podcast. He's a Hindu priest and a Buddhist monk. And he's just listening to him talk about how he doesn't let other people take his energy. It's really interesting coming from that. And he's like, you know, you don't need to blow up these relationships. You just need to stop giving them energy. Don't say stuff you don't mean. He's like, you know, the people in your life where every time you say, how are you doing? They're like, oh, well, and they risk thought, list the level, you know, whole thing of problems. He's like, I just don't ask them how they're doing. And I just found it funny to hear a monk say that. But he's like, I just don't like, I don't, I, I just don't want the drain of energy in my life. You you call them, I think, energy vampires, en- right? Energy vampires. Yeah, that was a that was one of my favorite Friday forwards and also the most popular podcast. And he just has some really great strategies. And when you hear it come from a, a monk and a priest, you're like, well, I can do that. And again, I think I kept thinking I was going to have to have all these breakups. Well, it turns out if you don't try to make plans with people you don't want to get together, then they just don't happen. And it just runs its course. Talk about that. When I read that, I thought you also do an annual process at Acceleration Partners focused on clients that you don't want to work with anymore. And, and while I'll be honest at Walker and Dunlop, we sat around from time to time and said, gosh, we just, I wish we didn't have to work with that client. If they're paying good fees and the banker or the broker wants to keep working with them, we just sort of sit there and say, okay, it's okay. It's very hard to sort of dismiss a client or just say, we're not going to work with you anymore. Do you all actually sit down, look at your client list on an annual basis and sort of say, okay, these top 10 are more effort than they're worth. And we're just going to say, sorry, we're not here for you anymore. Well, I don't think anyone should take unprofitable clients. So a couple of things. I think one, we do tell employees, look, don't pull the fire alarm if someone's had a bad day. I say this in the onboarding, but we just won't tolerate clients being jerks to our team and making their life miserable and it's too short. Now, you can also be honest with the consequence. If that if that's 30% of your revenue and you people are like, we don't like this client, you could say, great, I'm willing to get rid of this client. Are we willing to get rid of 30% of the jobs? 
So there needs to be honest discussions around these. And obviously, the more diversification you have, the better. But one thing we do do, and this happens several times, is when we get into situations where demand exceeds supply, we're like, look, we can't take on new clients and we're in the midst of rolling out start dates. We look around, we're like, which clients have run their course, just seem really unhappy? And why are we going to put off taking on new people who really want to work with us when we're have a couple of these kind of on. So we, we tend to just go to them and, and more mutually. Cause again, at, th- at that point, if they're that frustrated and complaining, they probably want it out. We'll be like, do you guys just want out of your contract? Because we're happy to let you do that. And we're just moving up the timetable on something that's going to happen already. There's a quote that you use when you're stop when you wrote about stop doing list. And it's from Jim Rohn, where he says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I thought that was an amazing thing to read and think about for a moment. And obviously, I sat there and thought about the five people I spend the most time with. When you focused on that, Bob, two things. First of all, did you make any adjustments to those five people? And if you did, was there a particular either person or quality to that person that you brought into that group of five? Yeah, I'll be careful on on answering these, but but I will say that I've gotten very big on clarification around core values the next couple of years. I know something we'll probably talk about, but for me, that is the ultimate test of someone like in being in, I'm in a lot of mastermind groups and peer groups. Those are the type of group you come out and everyone is helping each other and has ideas. And you're like, I want to do you know, more of that. And then, you, you know, you catch up with someone and same complaint, but that's been going on for three years. And you're like, God, that's sort of a bummer. So that's one of my favorite quotes of all time. I think if you really look around and think about it, the biggest thing around behavior change and habit change is actually environment. So for example, like if you want to stop drinking and your five best buddies go to the bar every night, you have a very low chance of stopping drinking, right? Your willpower is probably not going to be good enough to go to the bar every night and not drink. So if that's in priority for you, then you probably need some friends who don't go to the bar every day, right? Environment's really important to us. So I, I think when you think about these folks who, who are sort of drain the energy or otherwise, but for me, I'm gravitated towards people that are really aligned to my values. And I think some of the ones that people or businesses I've moved away from where I just see a value mismatch. And what happens is every time I've avoided a value mismatch on a small case, a year or two later, it blows up into a much bigger thing. And I just learned to not ignore the early warning signs, like particularly of like poor judgment, you know, in someone. And, you know, I had a situation, I think I talked about someone with one of my kids where I actually someone, another family's judgment, I just really didn't trust. And I actually thought my son was in danger one night and he wasn't, but that was the maddest I've ever been at myself for ignoring that signal early on. So in a Friday forward, somewhat related to what we're talking about, you put a Lou Holtz quote in, uh, (laughs) which, I mean, you just talked a moment ago about, you know, sitting down with a friend and having a friend get all pessimistic and negative on stuff. And you being like, you know, that I don't need in my life. And the Lou Holtz quote goes, don't tell your problems to people. 80% don't care. And the other 20% are happy to hear that you have them. Uh, But the reason I raised this, Bob, and want to hear your perspective on it is, is that in today's world, there's a lot about emotional leadership. It's been a very difficult last 18 months everybody is stressed out to some degree. There's kind of this 
survive mode that's going on in the back of all of our minds as it relates to getting through the pandemic, being safe, who am I with, who am I not with, where am I traveling, where am I not traveling, how's my job, et cetera, et cetera. And so with that behind the scenes running through everyone's mind, it seems like everyone wants to emote. How have you worked both inside of Acceleration as well as in the clients that you've worked with on guiding leaders to both be empathetic and at the same time, keep that sort of Lou Holtz quote in the back of their mind. Yeah, and the context is is important here because I think leaders need to be empathetic. They need to listen. They need to understand. And that Friday Four was actually about how do you reposition things to not be about you know your problem. So because I think it, it particularly in a, someone who butters your bread, like in a client service role or otherwise, when they're just when they're asking for more and you're exhausted, instead of saying I just can't do it or otherwise, how do you reposition in a way they can understand? So. Let's pretend I was canceling on you for this podcast last night. And I just said, Hey, well, like, I'm sorry, but like, I just got so busy and all this stuff. And I just, I know I said I do it, but I'm just exhausted and I'm tired. And like, I just told you all of my problems. I'm not sure that would deeply resonate, you know, with you. You're like, look, I did a ton of research and all this stuff. But if I just change that approach about, again, why is it bad for you? So, hey, Willie, like, a bunch of stuff went on this week. Like my head is just not in it. Like I could go forward it tomorrow, but I'm just afraid I'm not going to give you what you're looking for, or your audience, right? I, I'm now talking a little bit more about how it would impact you or what's the impact on you, not just the list of my, my problems. So yeah, I think it's a balance. I think this is the hardest stretch of leadership I've ever had because I, I'm used to business problems are solved with business solutions. And the stress that people have and the stuff going on outside of work that's coming into work cannot be totally relieved by fixing work. Look, I've seen all these, some gurus and stuff, everyone just needed a month off. And it's like, I agree with you, but like, who's going to pay for that? <laughs> the government's already printed enough. So if the answer is to give everyone a month off or say everyone's saying, look, what I really need is half the amount of work right now, but I need 100% of my pay there aren't many businesses margins that can support that. So I think we need to listen, need to understand what's going on. We need to communicate really well about the business objectives. I think when things were really stressful during COVID and for a while and people were starting like, look, I would like to help you as much as, as we can. Like, I want to give you as much flexibility. Let's see what we can. But understand if we just go dark on this client and lose them, it is not going to make things better. Then we're going to have a whole different amount of stresses where now we don't have enough money to pay people. And, and I think... You know, we've needed a lot of these real discussions, but understanding the mental health is is almost a requirement these days of of a leader. And it's not, it wasn't a big part of their job prior to March 2020. On the flip side of how to lead through it, you wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal recently on how to thrive in a virtual workplace. Can you give people some of the a synopsis of how to thrive in a virtual workplace? Yeah. So that's actually my newest book that came out a few months ago. I think it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. There are a couple of tips, both for understanding that businesses will choose a bunch of different types of workplaces, but they need to choose. At least the banks have chosen. I think everyone else is kind of being wussy, not telling their employees what they're going back to. And their employees are pretty stressed out and frustrated from it because... I used to work for you in the office in Denver and I moved to Montana during COVID. And like, I'm not sure whether I have, if you're going to call me back into the office and I, I have a job. So on the employee side, people need a couple of things. They need the right setup, the right tools. You know, I'm sitting here with a good $80 mic, a $60 camera, a light and a green screen, you know, that makes it look like I'm in this fancy room. So that obviously looks a lot better and more professional than being in my table with my dog, you know, running around in the background. 
employees also need to, if they're working from home, they got to delineate the space somehow. Like they need to set a work day. They kind of switch from Clark Kent to Superman and have different identities in the same space or else they're going to work too much and, and overlook. And then they need to just find the integration that works for them. I think one of the things that people working from home are missing is this commute. And I've encouraged them to put a virtual commute in at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. Like, don't start the day looking at email, have your coffee, read the paper, work out, do something, then turn it on. Similarly, shut it down at 530, go for a walk, do something before you get to the table. I think people are missing that transition time. On the employer side, a lot of the principles of good management and hybrid remote work are actually just good management principles overall. So leaders that communicate really well, that set KPIs, the biggest shift is moving from managing inputs to outcomes. We understand this in sales, right? If I say, Willie, who would you hire? Salesperson A makes 100 phone calls a day and sells $1,000 a day. You know, Salesperson 2 makes 10 phone calls a day and sells $10,000 a day. Which one would you rather have? B. Right. Everyone in sales gets that answer right. In the rest of their business, they're focused on, well, Jane was an hour late today or Steve wasn't in that meeting or others because they haven't set the outcome objectives that should make the inputs irrelevant. I think you dig into the inputs when the outputs aren't working. So if the salesperson's not selling at all, I dig in, I go, dude, you're not making any phone calls. Like, no wonder you're not, you know, making any, any sales. But this is a huge shift to outcome orientation, setting KPIs, communicating, delegating better, understanding the cadence. Look, I would much rather say to everyone, here's what good looks like in all these situations. And if I can help you, let me help you. And here's the clear, but like, I don't want to watch you every hour of the day or kind of stress that you're in the office late or now in the office late, because then I'm rewarding salesperson A and not salesperson B. So interesting. Do you think, Bob, that having fixed cost in office space is driving a lot of corporate America's desire to get back into the office versus the softer skills of teamwork and collaboration and creativity? I mean, the fact that it's largely old males that have come out railing with millions of square feet of office space that have come out, I would say, making opinion as fact statements about remote work. So you've got Goldman Sachs, right? The CEO coming out and calling it an absolute aberration that we're going to fix as soon as possible. Two weeks later, Goldman reports record revenue in quarter and earnings like in the company's history with everyone working from home. Do you think that reads a little disingenuously for the team? Now, people need to get together. There are things, if Goldman's pitching a multi-million dollar client, they should be in the conference room. But if the junior analyst has to do a model for 17 hours that day and doesn't have time to eat or shower, does he really need to come in and do that? Or can he do it from home? Or can she do it from home? Like I, 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 I am not someone who's saying office space is going to go away. I think, I think there are a lot of trends that are going to change how it's used. But I, I will say that I do respect the banks and the businesses in one sense who have said, you're coming back to the office by September 5th or you're fired because at least they are putting a stake in the ground. McKinsey just found out that 40% of companies have not declared their post-pandemic strategy. And another 30% have been so ambiguous that the employees don't understand what it means. That's creating more problems than the Goldman Sachs. I think everyone's trying to make everyone happy by not picking a strategy. We're past that point. You need to pick a strategy. You need to start reinforcing it. I mean, I've spoken to exec teams on this related to the book. These are large companies that are going to be back to work in a month or two without a strategy for whether people, how they're going to be in the office or when they have to be in the office. And I've heard 10 different versions of hybrid from you can do whatever you want to you, everyone's in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to everyone has to be in 50% of the time, to everyone has to be in for these sort of things. Those are totally different 
things that need maybe people will be interested or not interested. So I my overarching message is like we are past the time to declare a strategy, whatever it is. Set it, support it, understand that 30% of your people won't like it, which is probably why we're seeing the most turnover ever in April and May in the history of the US. Let everyone recalibrate and find the environment that they want to be on. But I think if you're you're going to be worse off by failing to make a decision and kind of maybe confusing and frustrating everyone rather than being clear about irrespective of Delta, what your strategy is going to be. I, I do give the banks credit. I think they're being clear. But I also think one of these banks is going to come out and be like, look, I know they're throwing you 180 or whatever, but we're 150 and you can work 50% from home or do whatever you want. And if you got to be in the spreadsheet for 14 hours, I don't care what you do it. And I think people are going to like that value proposition. It's really interesting. You did a TED talk on employee retention and in it, you underscore communication. You underscore the Jim Collins paradigm of get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seats on the bus. Yeah. Um, and interesting how we think about that in the sense of office space and now the office space is actually gone. And so you can't sit there and move people around. Right. Um, but also one of the things you talk about, Bob, that I found to be so interesting is those people who quit and stay. Talk about yeah. people quitting and staying. So these are the most dangerous people at your company. So you know, the people that quit and leave are the easy ones. They raise their hands and they say, you know, I'm out. The people that quit and stay, you know, decided that they're getting a bonus in January. They're not vested or whatever. They are like mentally done and gone from your company, but they just haven't left yet. And so they're kind of gutting you from the inside. And so that's where I think that having these open conversations, understanding that people are not going to work at your company forever and that it's making it okay to leave and saying, look, if you don't want to work here, like we'll actually make it safe to have a discussion and talk about that. Let us help you find your next job. I mean, think about your business, right? And McKinsey's always gotten this. Like people say, oh, I want to go in-house or I want to go do something. Well, those are your best future clients. So we say to our in affiliate marketing, since we are one of the few people training a lot of folks, we have a lot of companies that are interested in hiring our employees to be their in-house manager. Those are our future clients. Now, I prefer they not all leave at once, but we said, look, if you if being a, a in-house manager is a goal of yours, like tell us. We find these opportunities. We know you're not going to stay here forever. Like if we think it's a good opportunity for you, we've gotten our employees other jobs, but that only comes from honest discussions. And honest discussions only come if you can create a company that has true psychological safety where there are not repercussions to starting those discussions. So you talk about that of if you're not you're not wanting people to leave, but when they do leave, making it so that their transition is positive, that they're going to come back and be a client of yours. And as you rightfully say, McKinsey has built an incredible business on that. People people can tell McKinsey, I want to take a year off, use your office space and go find my next gig. And they'll give them the office space and probably keep paying yeah. in that period of time. It's amazing. But also you talk, Bob, about culture and a culture of being able to fail. And you set up a, a juxtaposition between Volkswagen when they had their diesel engine, both yeah. emissions failure and cover up. And then Ray Dalio and what he writes about in principles is what he's done at Bridgewater as it relates to setting up a culture that embraces failure. Can you talk about those two ends of the spectrum, if you will? Yeah. So I'm not sure everyone knows the Volkswagen story. So I'll just give the 30 second. The, the CEO of Volkswagen was just this hard charging German character of 
no failure, excellence, et cetera. And what Volkswagen had promised was they were going to deliver a high efficiency, low emission diesel engine. And when the engineers did all their work and came out, they were like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we could get like a little less emissions or a little less efficiency. We could dial it down, but we basically like, we couldn't deliver the the spec. And these are brilliant engineers, but they were so scared of telling him this that and figuring out how to reposition it or whatever, or, or solving the problem, that they put all that ingenuity in the software that would cheat the system and lie. He didn't tell them to do that. They just, the culture of a fear of failure made them use all their engineering resources to figure out how to make the engine look like it was doing something that, that it wasn't. And I think that's what happens in a culture of failure. Ray Dalio at Bridgewater was the opposite. So he had a guy make a multi-million dollar mistake and he was like, if I fire this guy over this make mistake, I will never learn about a mistake again. Like everyone will cover it up and hide it. And so he had this concept of the mistake log where like every mistake, and we've adapted a version of that in terms of writing and the military after action. Like when a mistake is made or something we can learn of, everyone writes a write-up so everyone else can learn from it. That's part of our core value of Excel and Improve. So they have a mistake log there and every mistake has to be logged and making a mistake is not a fireable offense. You should not make the same mistake two or three times because then you're not learning from it. But actually failing to put a mistake in the mistake log is a fireable offense. And I think that's an interesting, you know, you get the behavior that you incentivize. So you just talked about core values. You've spent a bunch of time working on both the core values at Acceleration Partners, as well as with a lot of your partner firms. And you actually have a, I'd call it a, a module on your, yeah. on your website that allows people to go to www.corevaluescourse.com and use your tool. Can you explain why you're so focused on core values right now and why you think that core values are so important given a number of the issues we just talked about, about back yeah. to office, about communication strategy, about why people leave companies, et cetera, et cetera? Core value is your ultimate decision-making rubric for your life. Like they are the things that you should do or not do. And I think about most of us only know our core values. We can't articulate them, but we know them when they're being violated. So imagine a car driving through a tunnel, a nice car. Let's pick a nice one, a Porsche. And the lights are off in the tunnel and it's driving through. Well, it's going to hit this wall on this side and scratch up the whole side. Like that's like kind of hitting the end of your relay crossing core value. It's going to slide, scratch it up. It's going to get through the tunnel, but it's going to be pretty beat up. If you turn on the lights and painted the lanes, you get through the tunnel without hitting all the guardrails. To me, it's the same thing around decisions you've made around people, jobs, or otherwise that are probably not aligned with your core values. When people read my bio and achievements and all that stuff, I always say almost everything on that list was after I actually came out of this leadership thing, determined I need to figure out my five core values, started to put them on my desk, align everything around them, make decisions based on them. I would have abandoned Friday Ford if I didn't have that list because I would have said, I don't know why I'm doing this. It doesn't make any money. It's stupid. Not it's stupid, but I just don't... under. And then I looked and I'm like, oh, it literally checks off every one of my core values. Therefore, it's probably one of the things I should do. So I found it's that's so powerful that we started with our leadership training in our company trying to, I didn't have a process I could follow. I went and found a million things and it took me six to 12 months and there was not a good rubric. So we started building a curriculum for our manager and our managers. And after four or five classes, of, we'll spend a half a day helping our employees figure out their personal core values, not, not company, because I actually think some might realize they're not in the right company, which is probably good for them to know. Two, like if they're going to lead and they're not clear on their core values, I don't think you can lead authentically. 
interesting, like a couple people have had core values of trust come up, and then you find out that leaders with trust have not known how to communicate to their team that like being five minutes late, missing a deadline or whatever, like permanently puts you in the penalty box for me because I, and usually people who have a core value of trust had a real trust issue in their life. So it's like that five minutes late to the meeting is like striking deeply and putting them in the penalty box. So they actually understand these things. They go back to their team. They explain it to them, what's important to them. Otherwise, we see their performance as leaders go up a lot more. And after about four classes and figuring like, wow, this curriculum like really works. People were asking me after Elevate, you talk about core values, you talk about spiritual capacity, like how do I do it? And in Elevate, I'm like, well, there's this keyword. That I was like, it's not, I can't really explain. Like it's complicated. But I was able to take that process after we got it really good and make it available to anyone. So it's about an hour course. I think it's the most important work anyone can do particularly around what I would call the big three in your life, which is your chosen partner and your chosen vocation or place of work or the community you choose to live in. I think if those are made not in alignment with your core values, they have a very low chance of success. So your book Friday Forward was on a Forbes list of the eight books you should read to be a better leader in 2021. It was on that list a year ago. So, And it was number one, by the way. And there were a lot of other great authors who were down below you. But you also are in great company and put a number of other great books on your website as it relates to things that you've read and that people could benefit from reading. There are a couple there, everything from Bill George's book, True North, to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I would say you mentioned the Tim Ferriss podcast. It seems like every time Tim sits around and asks one of his guests, what book they would recommend or what is, is that the one? Yeah. it's that book. It just, it comes up every single time. And there are a bunch of others. Ray Dalio's book principles is up there. If you have to kind of pick one, Bob, what's the one that impacted you the most? And then I guess probably more interestingly than that would be what's the book that's not there that should be there. That's a good question. So the one that I think is practical, Mathematically impacted me the most is, is on that list. Uh, Mistakes were made, but not by me, which I would say is the definitive book on cognitive dissonance. And I think we all know what cognitive dissonance is from like class or otherwise. But you, when you really learn about cognitive dissonance, particularly as a leader, you see it absolutely everywhere in people's decision making, their justification. Every like I, it is such a powerful and pervasive force that I think understanding that and knowing that is incredibly powerful. I I mean, I practically use the advice, not even the advice, but the learnings from that book all the time. That's my most gifted book, if people were to ask me about that. And the title is just great too. And the one that's not on the list or that you've read recently that should go up on the list? I've read it twice. It's a big job. I know it's more polarizing with people well, I'll give you two answers to this. One that goes with one and then, but Atlas Shrugged, I think was one of the more. <laughs> My wife and I were just talking about that last week. So I, re- I read it, I read it on, on a train in college and I didn't sleep and I read it like all night long. And then I was actually training for this London to Paris bike ride two years ago. And I, I would, I listened to it all on audiobook again for hours as I was doing it. And it just, I, it's just brilliant. And you see in her characters, the things that politicians say, and you hear them say it on the news every day. And it's just, it's kind of amazing. Aligned with Frankel, though, there's one I read more recently during the pandemic. You may have heard it's called Chasing Daylight. And I think it's very aligned. It's a story of the former CMO of KPMG who found out he had four months to live and how he sort of 
planned his whole death and how he was going to leave the world in the same way that he sort of planned his life. And it's hard to read that book without being in tears at some point, but I, I found it an incredibly powerful book. I got about another three pages of notes for you, but I, uh, we're running out on time. Well, well, I have, to, come I, back I have again. to tell you something. <laughs> usually I check the time on these conversations and I'm usually pretty good at knowing where I am in my conversation. And today I thought we were about halfway through and it was 21 past the hour. So I've clearly enjoyed our discussion a ton, Bob, and I'm deeply appreciative of your time. I would say as far as things you're reading and what I'm reading, I'm right now reading Change by John Cotter because I have Cotter on next week. And he being my HBS leadership professor, I'm really excited to kind of, if you will, turn the questions towards him after he questioned me all the time when we were in business school on uh, various elements of change and leadership. So that should be a good one next week. And it's a great book. So Bob, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to anybody who wants to learn more about Bob, go to robertglazer.com and Acceleration Partners is out there. And then also in our show notes, there will be links to the website that we talked about as it relates to creating your core values and doing analysis on that. So Bob, thanks very much. Have a great Wednesday. And everyone who joined us, thank you. And we'll see you again next week. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye.